Hey everybody, this is your host Matt Castellini and welcome to Chicago Capital. We've got another great episode for you today as I am joined by Prashant Shukla from Origin Ventures. Prashant is a vice president at Origin. He joined the firm as a senior associate in May of 2017. He serves as a board director for Origin portfolio company Blackcart and a board observer for 15.5, Blueboard, Glimpse, Every, Pronto, Measured Insurance, and Trala. Prashant started his career at Bain & Company. During his time at Bain, he advised telecom, healthcare, and education clients, but he spent most of his time on large technology clients dealing with strategic questions around emerging tech. After Bain, he joined San Francisco-based startup Metro Mile in 2012 as the first product manager, building a pay-per-mile auto insurance product. Prashant helped scale the company to over 300 employees as it took in over $200 million in venture capital financing. Prashant holds an MBA and an MPP from the University of Chicago and an undergraduate degree in economics, business, and environmental economics and policy from the University of California at Berkeley. This was a fantastic conversation and another great opportunity to pick the brain of an up-and-coming Chicago venture capitalist. I hope you enjoy. Prashant, thank you so much for joining me on Chicago Capital. It's a pleasure to have you here. Uh, Excited to be here, Matthew, and uh, looking forward to the conversation. I have to ask first, right off the bat, you know, looking at your background, you're a California guy, you know, born and raised there. What is it like being a Lakers fan marooned here in the middle of the Midwest? Well, the games are too late, first of all. So I have a a young baby. And so it's very hard to stay up and watch the games. Although the season ended earlier than I had hoped for this year. So uh, that helps with sleep patterns uh, a little bit. But I know Chicago is a big is a big sports town and obviously has a great sports heritage. And so uh, I'm happy to blend in with that culture and, and enjoy what the city has to offer for sure. Okay. First, yeah. only only follow-up question, and we may have yep. to end the podcast after this, is MJ LeBron the GOAT. Had to go there. <laughs> it's close. It's close. I don't know. I, I'm a little biased now because LeBron's been a Laker for a couple of years. But <laughs> I, I think they're they're just both incredible. They're different players, so so it's hard to say. But you know, it's hard to argue with Jordan's legacy and record, but LeBron's probably building a longevity case and it'll just be, you know, personal preference at that point. I can see your board member skills shining through right now. That was a <laughs> diplomatic answer. We love that here, Chicago yeah, Capital. Exactly. exactly. Um, I'd love it if we could get into your background, a little bit of, you know, how yeah. you got to venture capital and your path to origin. That'd be great. Yeah, sure. So, you know, I, like you mentioned, I, I grew up in the Bay Area. So I've been around tech for a while. You know, my, my dad worked at, still works at a technology company, AMD chip company. And, you know, I, I started my career in consulting. So I was at Bain in San Francisco. And just by virtue of being in that office, a lot of the clients are technology companies. And so most of the time I spent there right after college was working for technology companies and, you know, different strategy roles and things like that. So really got interested in the scene that way. And then naturally, just like everybody else in San Francisco, you get pulled into the startup scene. Uh, the gravity is just kind of too strong. So, you know, I, I left consulting and I joined Metro Mile, which at the time was like a 10 person startup, you know, venture backed. I just raised like 4 million bucks. So, so not a crazy amount. And I, I I was kind of the first kind of cliche, but like jack of all trades hire because it was an insurance tech company. So Metro Mile sells paper mile auto insurance uh, for those who don't know. And like, 
there's obviously some, you know, when you're starting a insurance company, it's a little bit different than just like a, you know, enterprise software company. You need like insurance people and actuaries and, and you know, claims people and things like that. So we had those people filled out and probably a couple of engineers and designers, but no real business hire. So I joined and soon thereafter, I was basically took over product for the company because the prior person who had been working on product left to pursue something else. So I was kind of the de facto product manager through an interesting period of growth from you know 10 people to over 100, raised a series A and a B after that, uh, moved the company from Redwood City to San Francisco, uh, launched a bunch of states and, and grew the company. So that was a really fun, interesting experience. I did that for about five years before deciding to uh, come to grad school here in Chicago, which is where I've been for the last six years. So I did a joint public policy and MBA from Booth um, starting in 2015. That's where I got exposure to venture capital for the first time. So obviously I had met with and worked with and gone to board meetings here and there for Metro Mile, but I didn't get a true taste of what venture is until I started interning and working part-time with some venture funds here in Chicago, Origin being one of them, which is which is where I ended up eventually joining in 2017. And I've I've been there for the past four years. And so, you know, just you'll probably ask about this, but you know, what interested me in venture was the ability to work on the same problems I was working at on Metro Mile, trying to build a company, but across, you know, the whole portfolio that we work with and kind of take some of the lessons I learned about hiring and growing and scaling a company and go to market um, and apply those to our portfolio companies. But I think it's just a really exciting time for technology investors. Startup is Startups are so exciting and fun, challenging, but there's never a, a boring day. So I'm lucky to be, to be a part of the ecosystem. I have to ask about the public policy masters uh, sure. in the hair school. I was really curious about that. What was the impetus for a dual uh, master's degree? Yeah, so I, 20, a long time ago, it's not that long, I guess, 2012, I worked between Metro Mile, and, sorry, between consulting and Metro Mile, I actually worked on the Obama campaign as a volunteer here in Chicago, actually, at the headquarters for about three months before going out into the field for a little while as well. And, you know, my role wasn't very critical. I was just a volunteer. But I think I got a fun experience and got to rub shoulders with some interesting people who have gone on to work in government or launch political consulting arms or media arms and things like that. And I, I know that even if it's not right now, although I'm involved with a couple of nonprofits, but even if it's not right now, I'd love to get my hands into some policy, philanthropy, nonprofit stuff. And so it only added a couple of quarters to my schooling and I was working through that time anyway, just even though I was in a full-time program. So, you know, just decided it was interesting enough. I wanted to get exposure to the professors and people in that school and I wanted to make those connections and, and have that base if I needed it to do something in the future, whether it's five years down the line or 15 years down the line. We're now getting off schedule, but I, I'm now really curious. Your sure. experience in politics, your experience in public policy, I would imagine a lot of that is spent constructing arguments, you know, convincing people. Do you find that that experience helped equip you to become a board member or a board observer? Are those sort of lessons and tactics you draw upon today? Oh, yeah, a little bit. I would say that, you know, my... I, I did spend some time working at the Department of Justice in California, actually for Kamala Harris, who's now the vice president, not for her directly, but one of You her. worked for all the big names. I mean, <laughs> what are you not doing yeah. in Washington? She was never there. She was, it was in San Francisco. She was never at the, uh, at the office because she was running for 
Senate at the time. So she was the attorney general of California running for the Senate. So she was never there. But her right-hand person in charge of technology, I was working with him on trying to drive innovation. It was an innovation unit there across the Department of Justice there. And, you know, as you can imagine, it is a slog, you know, trying to get basic information access to, to change the way things have been done in government just has different problems than it does in the private sector. I mean, the average tenure for a public service employee is a multiple of the average age of a startup. You know, the average age for a startup is not very long. So, you know, you just get sort of some entrenched behavior. And so navigating that was definitely a skill. I will say, you know, my experience as a product manager dealing with different personalities in engineering, design, different business stakeholders, that actually prepares you, I think, pretty well for how to work with founders and boards and things like that. Because, you know, you don't, nobody reports to you, right? There's no org structure when you're an investor or an observer or, or a director. And you're, you're trying to use, you know, influence and arguments in a way that's collaborative, but you can still disagree and drive, drive things forward. That's very much what a product manager has to do because while they may have product people who report in up through that organization, designers and engineers don't typically report into the product organization. And so how do you get engineers to do what you want when you, they don't work for you and they might disagree with you pretty strenuously at times? So that, that was a fun experience and learned, learned a lot from that. Yeah, I spent time yeah. at uh, Mayor Pete's office in Chicago, or yeah. sorry, in South Bend, Indiana, when I was at uh, yeah. in college. So uh, I got a little taste of the public policy world, but I think that's I think that's fascinating too. And yeah. I think it's venture is this interesting kaleidoscope of disciplines that can all yeah. sort of you know, there's no one path, there's there's no one route. But I think one thing I'm curious about, and this might lead into the thesis behind Origin Ventures and and how you guys invest. But this idea of value add investing, you know, you talk about you can bring your experience as a product manager, uh, you know, I'm sure you bring some of your strategy days with you from Bain with you and your experience of public policy. Do you think value add investing today is table stakes for venture capital? Do you think having skills like yours really helps you stand out in the world of VC and sometimes win allocation on deals that you otherwise may not? So I think the, the short answer is yes, I do think it's table stakes. I will say that recently, I mean, you're always going to have, it's just different business models, right? Some investors are passive by nature, either by definition, uh, they've decided to be passive, their sources of capital lend itself to be passive, whatever it may be. Then there's active investing, which is not active in the public equity sense, but active in terms of, you know, you take some potentially governance with the companies that you invest in, you help out on operations, whether it's hiring, introductions to customer, organizational structure, go to market, whatever it is, right? I, I would say that, especially recently, you've seen pretty large funds who have a passive index approach to investing. So, you know, Tiger, Tiger Global is probably the best recent example of that, which is they ask to be not involved in the company at all. They just do their, they make their decision about the category and who they want to place money in. They're sort of price insensitive up to a point and they move very quickly and they're buying an index of late stage technology companies. And, you know, we can argue about the stra that strategy. Nobody knows if it's right or wrong for another 10 or 20 years. So it's hard to say, but that's also a symptom of companies staying private and not going public and able to, you know, you used to go public like, I mean, this is, this is when I was super young, but you used to go public and raise 
10, 20, 50 million, 100 million bucks in an IPO. Nowadays, nobody cares about those IPOs. I mean, if you're not raising multiple hundreds of millions at decacorn plus valuations in an IPO, you sort of don't matter. And so I think what some investors, SoftBank being one, Tiger being another, there's a lot of other hedge funds coming down market as well. They've realized like, hey, that's where the alpha and the opportunity is. We're missing out because we used to be able to buy these younger companies when they were public already. Can't do that. And so getting back to your question though, it is table stakes for early stage investors to have some of that. I think if you want to be a lead and you want to have serious ownership in a company and you want to take governance positions with your companies, because otherwise you're just going to get muscled out by investors that are more helpful beyond kind of the maybe the, the tangible stuff of like, oh, I can introduce you to three customers and make X in engineer introductions. And we're sort of just origin. We just want to be there for our founders and CEOs. Like it's a long journey. You know, the early stage relationship between a founder and their investors, their major investors is longer than the average marriage in America. So especially for the companies that succeed that are around for 10, 15 years before a liquidity event, they, you just need to be a sounding board. Like some days they're going to be down. Some days they're going to lose a key employee, key customer. They're going to, you know, miss out on a bake-off. Uh, they're going to go through personal challenges in their life, you know, aside from the company that they're working on. And so we, we're just there 24-7. So, you know, we're, we live on iMessage with our founders and CEOs, Slack channels, whatever it is. We're a phone call away. Uh, they're all, you know, favorites in our iPhone because we just talk to them all the time. And I think that has intangible value beyond the capital that you bring to the table and the quantitative introductions and stuff that you can make. It's also too, it's such a massive market. There's so many founders out there. Some of them have different needs than others. Some of them want more active involvement. Some of them want just a tiger global check and yeah. to be left to do their own thing. Yeah. Um, curious about origin a little bit. I think we've talked about, and through your answer, we have a good idea for, for how you guys like to operate post-investment. Yeah. But pre-investment, would love to hear the mandate of origin, what you all look at, you know, what sectors, just to learn a little bit more about uh, about the fund. Yeah. So we're, you know, early stage investors, started the firm. I didn't start it, but it was started 22 years ago here in Chicago. It's now, it's now become kind of a national fund. We have an office in Utah and multiple people there, and we invest coast to coast in North America, for, you know, including Canada. And so, um, you know, focus on early stage software companies and marketplaces, digital marketplaces. So some notable investments include Grubhub. You know, we did the seed in Series A there. Uh, we were in the seed round for Cameo. So a couple of local Chicago stories. Uh, software companies, you know, we were early investors in Talk, did the, the first couple of institutional rounds there. And then we have a number of other software companies, not in Chicago, you know, including 15.5, which is a HR performance management platform, Fountain, which is a hiring and onboarding platform, both in San Francisco. I can go on, but I, I would say that the fund has grown, I think, with the venture market. And so we're a little bit bigger than we were in the prior fund and the, before that, smaller as well. I would say that we're all ex-operators and engineers. So we kind of bring that vibe to the companies and the entrepreneurs that we work with. And I think you kind of asked about this and maybe your prior question of, you know, value add active versus passive and stuff. And the, the approach we've always taken with our with our founders and CEOs is, to be to try to be that first phone call to be the MVPs of the boardroom, and so we may not be the biggest check in the company. Certainly not for our later stage companies that have, you know, graduated and moved on to, to raise more growth capital. But sometimes we're still the first phone call because we were there from the beginning, or they just have that trust, you know, with their the people that they work with at Origin. But I I think we also have like a firm approach versus like a 
GP individual approach. So like, you know, sometimes when you take money from a fund, you wonder whether, are you going to get exposure to the whole fund? Are you really working with one person or two people? We have obviously leads, but you have access to the whole firm at any time for anything that you need. And we take that collaborative approach in our summits uh, that we hold for our CEOs, go-to-market teams, engineering teams, all the, the virtual Zoom calls that we do across our portfolio now. And I'd love to dive a bit about the firm approach or your approach to due diligence. So for you, you know, somebody is new starting out in the VC industry, still trying to hone, you know, my pattern recognition skills and just constantly trying to get a little better at the due diligence process. Such an important role, especially as a junior VC. I'd love to hear what are some of the first areas that you attempt to validate in the due diligence process after the founder has pitched you for the first time? What's your mental model uh, at that point? Yeah, I mean, and, and I think implicit in your question here is like speed, right? The market has, I mean, I've only been in venture for a little over four years, but it's frenetic, right? I mean, deals are getting done same week. Tiger will wire within three days of meeting a company. So you're competing against that a little bit and they're coming down market. But you are, you just have to be really quick to assess whether you're going to take the next step. And so, you know, at Origin, we may in the past have had longer diligence cycles. Here, it's shortened a lot. You're gonna, you're gonna do a couple of things. You're gonna make quicker individual decisions about whether you think this is something you wanna bring to the team or not. Because we still, while we don't operate on a consensus basis, we're kind of too big for that. We still want to make sure that enough people at the fund get bought in and exposure to a deal because we we rely on each other's expertise and judgment. We punt more things to post term sheet than we would have in the past. You know, an example of that might be customer calls, right? Um, we might have done those or in-person meetings like with COVID, that's complicated. You might have done full in-person management company meetings prior to a term sheet before, that's out the window now, especially with the pandemic, but also because speed, you just can't do that anymore. Same thing with customer calls. And, you know, I can go down the list there, but I, I would say that at the seed stage, which is probably where a third of our deals are, maybe a fifth of our capital, a third of our deals, maybe a, a little bit less than a fifth of capital, but we, you have to be, you have to just look at the category, look at the founder, like what's the opportunity? Is this the right team to do it and make a decision? Because there are going to be pivots and tweaks and nuances and changes in the, the market and the macro world that you can't predict. And so you're ultimately betting on a vision and a set of people, whether it's a two founding team, three founding team, early employees, whatever it is. So that's like step one. And for a series A deal, yes, you do have more traction to look at, but we try not to be momentum investors. It's easy to say, well, I can plug in what they did last quarter and what they did this quarter, imply a growth rate and say, oh, I, I'll invest if the growth rate is X and I won't invest if it's Y, but that's kind of a silly way to invest because obviously there's there's way more that you have to have to evaluate than that. And so it, it does for us, I think, come down to team, market, the long-term vision, and then all the other things that you might consider around competition, ability to hire, how helpful we can be to the company, right? Because like there's only 20 or so investments we can make out of a fund. There's a lot of great opportunities that we see, but where can we make the most difference to a company, we have to be picky about that as well. And so we pretty quickly, I will say individually, meet a company, am I gonna push for this one or not? And you make that decision, and then you hit a second break point once you've gotten deeper, had more exposure for the team, for origin to the company and vice versa, meet more people at the company, and then you make a decision after that pretty quickly. So I try to get to conviction quickly, 
but it's weakly held, if that makes sense. Like strong conviction, but weakly held. The Series A stage, I mean, yeah. I think you are, Origin's sort of one of the first funds that I've had on the show. I've had a lot of Chicago funds, and usually there's a focus on firmly seed, maybe some pre-seed, maybe some early Series A. But for your Series A investments, are you looking for product market fit specifically, or maybe signs of product market fit? Is that how you're judging your Series A investments at a high level, at least? Yes, it is. Typically, you know, you want to have signs of traction, right? Like, are you, if you're a consumer company, are you signing up customers? It doesn't need to be revenue, although revenue is great, but if it's a consumer business, let's say like, and monetization isn't quite figured out, but you're obviously, you've hit onto something um, with consumers that your value proposition is resonating. People are signing up, downloading your app, whatever it may be. On the B2B side, typically, you know, if you're looking at either bottoms up or top down sales, you can look at some of that traction, look at the pipeline, you can evaluate PLG product like growth companies and do an analysis there. But yeah, I mean, for, for Chicago, there are a decent number, but not a crazy amount, like you point out of like core series A funds that'll write five, six million, or, you know, lead rounds that are 10 to 15 million. And, and we're one of them. And, and we like that, right? The fact that we can see those deals here locally at the pre-seed seed stage, track them. It is competitive though, I will say, especially with COVID funds on the coast will come to Chicago to do series A deals. Historically, it used to be more at the B stage. They would bring growth capital, but it, they're coming earlier. So we, we do have to form those relationships you know, kind of early, but we do look for product market fit. We, we are willing to be pretty flexible there. I know there are some funds who'll say, if you don't have 2 million in, you know, revenue, whatever that may mean for your business, don't talk to me. Right. And like, we've done series A deals where companies have less than a million, sometimes zero, sometimes 5 million in, in revenue. And so we're pretty wide on the spectrum. So we play in the pre-seed play all the way to late stage series A and try to maintain that flexibility. So we, we kind of have a focus on software and marketplaces. We have a focus, we have a thesis focus around digital natives, which you can read more about on our website, but it's this idea that millennials and Gen Z are now the generations that matter for purchasing decisions. Like the oldest millennials are in their late forties. So we're not like kids anymore living in our parents' basements, although we might've been back when the financial crisis hit in 09. <clears throat> but you know, we're the decision makers for bringing software into our enterprises. What are the decision makers on buying homes or moving our trillions of dollars in wealth creation that is soon to happen around the, uh, the markets and the economy? And so we try to find businesses that resonate with those people and then assume that it's going to spread up into older generations and then it's going to have staying power as we move down into lower generations. But we do maintain option value geographically, as I mentioned, stage-wise, we're pretty wide pre-seed to post-A. And we're not a huge fund. I know it's easy for you know a large NEA multi-billion dollar fund to be multi-stage. It's a little bit harder for a you know smaller fund that's based between the coast to do it, but we're able to do it. And and yeah. When you were first starting out at Origin, yep. what were some of the challenges? Did you did you find it challenging to look at a series A, late series A company one day and then move on to a seed company or a pre-seed company the next day. How did you get whiplash from changing the heuristics you had to use? How, how, what was that process like for you starting out? It's a great question actually, because I'm not cured of that. It's now, it's, it's difficult because the questions, like you go from one call one hour to another call the next hour and 
one might be a pretty mature a deal with lots of cohorts you can look at and last three years of revenue that you can break down and talk about customers and churn and all this stuff. And then you're looking at an idea, a founder and a deck, and they have, you know, no customers. They've been working on this for three months. They just finished an earn out at some other company that they exited. And you do have to remind yourself, like, it's a completely different framework that I'm looking at here. And we have to train ourselves and keep ourselves honest, which is why I love our team, because people will keep each other honest. And I'm like, hold on, like, we can't evaluate this deal as if it were here. That's not where the pricing is going to be. That's just not the stage and the risk we're taking. It's just very different. And sometimes it's hard to, to keep that in check because you're working with so many portfolio companies that are all different stages. You're working with, you're looking at deals that are of different stages and you have to remind yourself like, hold on, I don't need to ask 50 questions about that customer because that's not the bet I'm making here. Whereas in a different deal, that may be the bet you're making. And it's a great question because that's, that's something you deal with when you're not like singularly focused on a particular stage, a narrow stage, which has its own benefits and drawbacks as well. Have you ever come across a situation where you are looking at a, se a late Series A, let's call it a company that you think has found product market fit, and that ability to switch between stages is almost a benefit when you head back to a seed stage investments because you can say, my pattern recognition bells are sort of going off right now. I know the story of this Series A company. It got to mm -hmm. a Series A. It got to this valuation, and mm -hmm. I'm and there's there's signs here in this seed stage company uh, yeah. that maybe it'll follow the same path. I know that's a broad question, but is something like that, you know, something that you almost view as a strength sometimes? No, it, it is. And, and even less so with like new deals we're looking at, we use that pattern recognition for our portfolio companies, right? And so we'll, we'll talk about that with prospective investments as well. We'll say, we know that you're missing XYZ executives at your company because we've seen this movie 10 times. Stuff is going to start breaking when you go from 10 to 20 employees or 20 to 50 or 50 to 100 and you don't have you know, these people in place that have done it before to kind of cover the gaps that exist in the founding team or the, the existing executives, we definitely do that. So whether it's personnel, go-to-market, organizational structure, technical debt, we use that pattern recognition all the time because we say Cameo is an example. Cameo was a seed company when we first invested. Now it's a pretty mature, you know, unicorn. And for a lot of consumer companies, Cameo did a lot of things right in the early days. So what can we learn from that? Um, and they... You know, they've been sort of an open book with, you know, Steven, CEO, talking about how he's built this company. Now he's gone remote first with COVID. How does he run his team? How does he manage himself? Those are things that founders should pay attention to because you don't have to reinvent the wheel. Like certain things you can do differently for sure. Uh, and, and maybe you should, but you can look to case studies and say, let me learn about that. So that's a lot of the value I think we can bring, which is I've lived this last year with another company. Let me walk you through what they went through you can decide what you want to do. We're never prescriptive with our founders. Like we don't say you have to do this or you don't do this. We just say, here are things to consider. I hear you. Just consider these two or three things. And we tell them the stories and we offer to connect them directly to those people. But it, it's a great point, which is part of what allows you to be, it's almost like if you're a parent and you've been a parent to a teen and now you have another teen, well, you've seen this movie before. So you know, you know what to watch for. You know where the breakpoints are. You know when it's a yellow flag or when it's a red flag, and you can just point that out earlier, which is which is helpful. I love that analogy. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You did mention cameo, and yeah, I have to ask. I'm really curious as to when Origin did seed cameo. Was the creator economy? I don't even think the term existed back then. What has it been like to see cameo really emerge as one of the forefront companies? 
in the creator economy that's sort of built on the back of the creator economy. What has that process been like for all of you over at Origin? I have to imagine it's been a blast. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's certainly you know one of the more exciting investments. Obviously, it touches celebrities, media, fans. You could easily you know write stories about all the different use cases that have spawned out of Cameo. I mean, I think I think the the thing for us collectively as a firm and Brent, my partner, is the lead on that for us, but. The whole team, when we first got exposure to the founding team, we saw the reaction videos, first of all. So we saw like the birthday wishes and the reaction videos. And we said, you have to pay attention when a product for 40 bucks, 50 bucks, 30 bucks, 70 bucks can make grown adults or anybody really fall on the floor and start laughing or crying. Like you're just creating such magic there. Like you have to pay attention when that's happening because I know that doesn't happen in B2B enterprise software. Like nobody opens up Airtable and is like, oh my God, and starts laughing or, or crying because of how it touches them. And so, you know, we started using the product and obviously watching their growth has been incredible uh, for that team there and, and kudos to them. So it, it's one of those things where they were, it was so early, they had, you know, some revenue, but very, very little. And you just kind of had to believe that Steven's vision of XYZ, you can you can basically pay X amount to have Y celebrity do Z activity. There's going to be a market for this because his point, which he was right about, by the way, like the creator economy wasn't a thing then, you're right. He talked about, there's this long tail of talent. I'm telling you it exists. Like he had been walking around Chicago for two years trying to get people to believe him that people would pay money for like, you know, what they derogatorily maybe call C and D list celebrities, but it's this long tail that has a passionate following. It's not LeBron with 20 million Instagram followers, but it's somebody who has 250,000 fanatic YouTube followers that, you know, listen to every word that they say when they're streaming on Twitch. Like that's real too. It's not LeBron real. It's just different. And so he was right about that. And that's, that's the bet we took, which was that's a real market. And this is a real magical experience that you can create leveraging that that kind of marketplace. And so that's been a really fun one to see. And we've been supportive of them, you know, all the way through here, their most recent round. Um, so we couldn't be happier for that founding team and, and the whole company. I have to ask, who would you most like to receive a cameo from or who have you received oh. one from in the past? You guys just get free cameos. I would imagine you guys don't have to pay for your cameos. No, no, no. Right? We, pay, we, pay, we pay for our cameos. No, no, we, we, I don't, we, we don't like to do the kind of get free stuff from your portfolio companies thing. And also it's just, it's just fun. I mean, you know, these cameos, uh, obviously they range in, in prices, but I, so I, I bought, I've bought many cameos. I've also received a number. I, it's hard for me to think about the, the best cameo or the one I would want to receive most. I mean, Magic Johnson just joined. So a cameo board member. Yeah. Right. A board member. And now he's on cameo. So a cameo from Magic Johnson would probably be pretty special. But the best one I bought was probably one from Kareem, actually, uh, also a former Laker, for, for my dad for Father's Day. And he just, he's a huge Kareem fan. He was in L.A. in the 70s and 80s. And so, you know, his reaction to Kareem saying his name and talking about his life story was, was pretty incredible. Yeah. You mentioned Steven. First off, Steven's Twitter game is amazing. I kind of have to give him a shout out. <laughs> Mr. 312. Yes. Yeah. It's awesome. You mentioned his vision and the belief that he inspired in you guys, even at such an early stage. 
What are some other really great green flags that you like to look for out of founders at those early stages where it might just be an idea and a pitch deck? For you, what are some you know alarm bells that ring in a positive way uh, mm-hmm. for founders? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. So one thing one thing we look out for is when a founding team or a founder has some sort of relevant domain expertise for the problem they're tackling. And it's it's sometimes non-obvious, but like maybe you've never built a software company before, but in Talk's case, for example, like Nick and Grant had restaurants and they built software to help them better manage their restaurants. Then they realized there was a commercial opportunity with that software that ended up being pretty large and they were right about that. Now, Nick knows restaurant owners and the business of restaurants really well. He doesn't know how to, he didn't know how to build a software company because he hadn't done that before. Now he has, but it's that kind of insight, which is like, well, yeah, they're not like B2B software experts, but this, he understands the plight and the challenges of the target market he's going after. And so we've seen that in a, in a number of different cases that we've invested in and, and others that we haven't, but that's something that we always look out for because it's like, there's a reason why this idea couldn't be run by any team out there. Like I can't just walk down the street in San Francisco and pick three random people and say, go work on this. There's, there's something unique about this person working on this problem. So that is a really positive signal for us. If I had to pick one. Yeah, no, it's that idea. I think of earned secrets and I think, yeah. uh, Talk's a great example too. And this conversation around domain expertise, you guys are software, avid software investors, is the idea of verticalized SaaS solutions. Talk's a good example, but are there any other ones in the portfolio or is that sort of a trend that you are interested in or you guys are actively looking to invest in uh, vertical software solutions? Yeah, we, we definitely are. I would say more of our software investments are horizontal. And maybe that's just because when you when you have a vertical play, Domain expertise is really important, number one. And number two, sometimes you just get pulled horizontally because of market opportunities and expanding your TAM. And also sometimes it's easier to apply certain software companies more, more broadly horizontally. We're certainly not averse to, to vertical plays. You just have to, you have to have the right combination of like domain expertise, enough of a market opportunity there. And what we don't like, you know, one thing we don't like doing is betting on jumping markets. So it's like, oh, you're building something really great for the used car industry. Oh, and we're going to go do the same thing for this other industry. And it's like, hold on. It's easy to say that. There's a lot of nuances, earned secrets like you talked about that are not so simple. And so sometimes it's it's smarter to double down where you are and expand the portfolio of what you're building once you build a good wedge. So we do tend to look for that, which is obviously domain expertise is one, but what's your wedge? What's your Trojan horse? Like, you're going to, one example we like to pick is Carta. So Carta, when it started, was cap table management software, which is like not very sexy, right? It's like, okay, you know, I have a spreadsheet. I guess this is a little bit better. But now they've they've expanded into like the source of truth for companies' cap tables, but also they can run financial analysis. They're handling stock options. They're launching Carta X. They're doing all these other things that touch everything related to private equity, you know, and startups and things like that. So that is an example of like, you found a good wedge and then you expand it. And so we tend to look for those really, really smart wedges or Trojan horses. Yeah. Almost as similar to, you know, Stripe starting out with simple payments, but then moving up, adding more layer cake solutions, which just 
increases the switching cost first off, but also just increases how valuable you are to those customers that hopefully you've already delighted. You're upselling them. Your average contract value is rising. Yeah, I think so. Stripe kind of sounds like another example on what you're talking about. Exactly. Yeah, for sure. Talk is an example of a company that definitely pivoted during COVID, you know, and it unlocks sort of a new feature and almost similar to what we were just talking about, found a new sort of layer cake solution that could add more value to its customers. Any other interesting trends or inflections that you saw during COVID that, you know, have created sort of investment thesis in your mind or areas of interest for you as we sort of move through 2021? Yes, I would say, you know, we're seeing a lot of activity in fintech right now, I think for a couple of reasons. One, cost of capital is still cheap. So interest rates are super low. I think that's part of it. The other thing is with the pandemic hitting, it put a strain on different people in different ways for, you know, unfortunate financial pain or access to jobs or banks or, or situations that just was fertile ground for innovation there. And so we're seeing all kinds of interesting opportunities on the consumer side or B2B2C side that are worth paying attention to. I also think you have this whole generation, the Gen Z generation, that they're in their first job and they're buying their first home um, and, and Gen Alpha too. But like they're used to not carrying around literally anything but their phones. And so how do you build banking solutions for that generation that never wants to go into a bank branch? never wants to talk to anybody on the phone, but wants to be able to do everything instantly with privacy, security, safety, and monitoring. So lots of opportunities there. E-commerce is another one. Like, obviously we saw the accelerations with the pandemic of like online groceries and re- you know retail shifting online and all that kind of stuff, creating opportunities. I would say that, you know, one investment we made in an infrastructure play in e-commerce was Blackheart, which is a try before you buy platform. And we think that the opportunities in e-commerce are only going to get bigger, not smaller. Uh, when you think about all of all of the stuff that is still done in person in retail across the different categories, there's still a lot of opportunity for disruption, both for in-person interactions and making it more efficient, making it safer, making payments easier, making discovery easier, making supply chain and logistics easier. And then obviously the online angle as well across Discovery, search, you know, payments, logistics, security, every, you know, all, all the way through. Yeah, Blackheart's one that I'd love to hear a little bit more about. It seems like it's a great use case, great example that fits very firmly into your digital native thesis. Would love to hear just about the experience of analyzing that investment and what led you to conviction and still gives you so much confidence in that investment today. Uh, I know you're a board member, so I would love to hear the story a little bit more about Blackheart. Yeah. So, you know, I first came across Blackheart um, from one of their seed investors and immediately thought, well, that's that, that makes sense. Right. And that, you know, you asked about kind of conviction. How do you decide early on, you know, to pursue a deal or not? And it's like one of those things where you, you know, I, I met with the founder, Donnie, and the way he explained his background and the vision for the company and what it was solving for just made a lot of sense. It's like if I go into Nordstrom and I try on jeans, like, I don't pay for them before I go into the fitting room, but online shopping requires you to pay. And part of the reason it does is because there's logistical cost, okay? And part of it is fraud. They want to take your payment down just in case you're there's bad debt, you know, you keep the product, you damage it, whatever. It totally makes sense. But that's not everybody. Most people online shopping are acting in good faith and they actually just want to be able to try stuff because 
you don't know about the fit. You don't know if the colors are exactly what they look like on your computer. And you know what Stitch Fix, Warby Parker, Trunk Club did for their own vertical brands, these Blackheart, the company is trying to do for any merchant selling anything online. Why wouldn't you want to expand your TAM by including the people who don't necessarily have the ability to tie up their working capital on their credit card or debit card to try something at home, but would be willing to do it on faith and try out a trunk of stuff. And so, you know, the company insures the risk for the merchant. So that's a big deal. Meaning if the person damages it without paying for it, or there's fraud where they, they there's bad debt, basically, they don't convert the payment after keeping the product, Blackheart eats that cost out of the fee that they take. But what they found is even net of that and net of the return logistics cost, the additional cost, they're still orders of magnitude ROI for merchants um, across not just apparel. So apparel is the obvious one, but electronics, cookware, jewelry, shoes. There's just a lot of things where people are more comfortable buying them after they've tried it. And so they've run A-B tests and shown that they can raise conversion rates, net order baskets, order sizes for merchants when you offer a try before you buy, which just kind of makes sense. Like, I'm more likely to buy something, no matter what the cost is, if I'm able to try it for free. And how many markets are they in today? What's been their expansion like since you invested? What's kind of the the roadmap for them? Yeah. So, I mean, they they integrate with all of the large kind of online storefront companies. So Shopify being the best example. So like if you're a Shopify plus merchant, which there are obviously a, a large number and growing very quickly of merchants, they tend to target merchants that are a little bit larger. So not just not not super small merchants, but not super big either, right? So kind of the thick middle on Shopify Plus. So they're not constrained so much by selling. To, when you ask about like which markets are they in, it's more like, you know, they cover North America pretty cleanly. They have some customers that are European and they're looking to expand more internationally. There's just some nuances around the fraud and how they run some of the credit checks on customers, but they have a vast array of different, I would say, consumer products already categories on there, apparel, electronics, cookware, jewelry, watches, shoes, et cetera. And are they based in Kansas City? No, they're based in Toronto, actually. Toronto, they have, got it. They have employees kind of all over. They have some in the US and they, they have a number of remote employees, but their headquarters is in Toronto. Got it. Yeah, Toronto, I know, is a really exciting ecosystem. I think we're looking in Toronto. I think a lot of firms are keying in on Toronto as kind of one of the next new sort of secondary markets. When did that sort of interest from Origin really start in that ecosystem? Yeah, so it's funny, like four years ago, three or four years ago, we did an analysis um, of markets where we were trying to figure out, like, where is there the right ingredients for great seed and Series A companies? but not a mismatch with the amount of local Series A capital, excuse me, that exists. And we identified, we did a whole we did a whole analysis that was quantitative and qualitative. And the two cities that were spit out, or MSAs, I should say, Atlanta and the Toronto Corridor. And so we started spending time in both of those markets. We've now made uh, an investment in Toronto. We made another Canadian investment, not in Toronto, but Canada, I think, is coming up as a really, really good market for US-based investors, because I think there's been a mismatch in terms of the capital, local capital that's been available. They do have a good government funding kind of program and framework, but in terms of private early stage capital, 
versus the opportunity there. We, we focus on Canada. We spend a lot of time in Atlanta. Uh, we have an investment that we're about to make in Miami, the Southeast. We have investments in DC and Pittsburgh and Boston. So we're like, we're everywhere. There's very few cities in North America where we either haven't made investment or haven't recently looked at a deal there. That's Amazing. First yeah. off, Cameo moving to Miami, you guys investing in yeah. Miami. Yeah, I yeah. think the uh, the parlay, Chicago-Miami parlay, is uh, that's it's a smart one. A it's becoming a thing. I think a lot of people, you know, the winners in Chicago can be a little tough, <laughs> but Miami kind of beckons. And obviously, there's some other advantages to being down there as well. So we're excited about both those ecosystems. We continue to see really great deal flow out of Toronto, tend to get to know all the seed funds there. I think there's actually a number of Chicago funds that invest and spend time in Toronto and and that's great. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I know we we're, we're actively involved there as well. Yes. Um, curious though about the Chicago ecosystem. You, as we mentioned at the top, grew up in LA. You know, went to Berkeley. You know, you spent time in the Valley. You spent time in Southern California. What kept you in Chicago all these years? What made you so excited to start your career and you know maintain your career as a venture capitalist here in Chicago? Yeah. So I would say it's it's the team at Origin. I mean, I think I got to know. Jason, who's a, who's a partner, he's also a professor at Booth, so I got to know him pretty well while I was at Booth. And you know, it's 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 a firm where you know we're we're allowed to have independent thinking, we're allowed to pursue our own deals, have our own carve out our own niches. Uh, it's pretty flat as an organization, low ego. Everybody rolls up their sleeves, and so I just I really like the opportunities that we have as a firm to grow the origin brand and continue to scale as we are a nation nationwide fund. And, you know, obviously the thing that COVID proved is that, is that we can do our jobs from anywhere and still be pretty effective. Now I don't, I, I, I'm not a particular proponent of completely remote. I do think there are benefits to being in the same room and drawing stuff on the whiteboard or getting to collaborate face-to-face -face and read people's interactions. It's just different over video. So I think hybrid models are, are kind of the future and I think Origin's got a bright future. I think it's set up really well. And whether it's you're in Chicago or Utah or California or the East Coast or Canada, it's sort of as long as you're as long as you're doing what you need to do, staying close and cohesive as a team, sticking to the strategy and the thesis. I think we'll we'll be good. Yeah, I definitely can attest. I can't wait to do these podcasts in person. And I don't know if you guys have a podcast studio or at, over <laughs> at Origin. I know you have a podcast, but if you ever want to just let me sneak in the back door and use that thing a couple times a week, I'd we, greatly appreciate. We do not have a studio. We do have a podcast. Studios just Anchor FM, the the online cloud portal. But yeah, no, I would say like I didn't spend time in LA. I didn't grow up in LA. I grew up in the Bay, but obviously like being in Chicago. It's, it's very different. And I know one of the things we, we've mentioned briefly around what is Chicago best at, right? Like the Bay does its thing, New York does its thing, LA does, you know, every ecosystem is different. Obviously COVID kind of jumbled all of that, but you still have kind of identities, right? And so like New York had an identity as, as a financial powerhouse and, you know, the Valley has always been, okay, we're tech. Chicago has a good balance, right? It's the, we're probably the most balanced major city in, in the US and that brings opportunity, but it's also hard to carve out an identity. And maybe that's one of the things that maybe historically has held back the ecosystem from stamping itself as like, we're the leaders in this. I do think logistics is starting to become a pretty, like it's hard to have a logistics company that doesn't have a presence, a foothold, a HQ or start in Chicago. I think it's just hard 
to do that. Like even Uber Freight and large logistics players have to have a presence here in Chicago just because the way the logistics works in the world in the U.S. kind of runs through here. So I do think there's that. I do think food is a pretty good one here for Chicago. I mean, there's some great food wins that have come out of here. Grub Up and Talk are, are two of them, but, you know, Tavala and there's some others uh, that, that are working on really cool things. So it's a great food town as well. But I, I do think like you want to become known as like a place that can build a consumer company. You want to become known as a place that can build an enterprise software company because there's just so much value creation in technology and venture there that you can't cross those off your list. You can't say, I'm only going to be healthcare or logistics or food. You have to get into some of these other verticals and, and stand by your, your name there. So there's a lot of great stuff happening in the Chicago ecosystem from accelerators, seed funds, entrepreneurs, people moving back here from the Bay or New York because of cost of living reasons. Um, so there's a lot of ingredients there. And I think even politicians and the government are waking up to that opportunity to really double down on what they're being given. Uh, you know, great schools, educated, young population should be a great hub for, for venture and technology for years to come. But it's going to take some premeditated and active involvement from everybody within the community to make it happen. But we need like fewer panels and white papers and uh, posts about it. We just need more people doing that investment, starting those companies and hiring people here. That's all we need. Love that. I love that. I'm happy you didn't say we need fewer podcasts because- No, 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 no. We need the podcasts. <laughs> Okay. Podcast all right. Community. All right. Yeah, okay. That's part okay. of the that's part of the cultural and social fabric. Uh, <laughs> so, and it's part of doing honestly because you just need to do more stuff. This has been amazing. You touched on yeah. food, so I have to ask. Yeah. I always do trying to build out my you know repertoire of food spots. What are yeah. some of your favorite Chicago eateries that you'd love to give a shout out to? Oh man, that's tough. So I used to live in like Streeterville River North, and then now I live in Lincoln Park. So Streeterville River North. What are some of my favorites? So RPM. For good Italian, Ima and Abba out in the West Loop for Mediterranean, Momotaro for sushi, Israeli slash Middle Eastern here in Lincoln Park. I like Galit a lot. It's a couple blocks away from me. What else? For Indian food, I'd probably go Spice Room or Vajra. Those are my two. What else? Royster. Royster is probably my favorite restaurant in the Alinea Group family. It's also more affordable. That's probably part of it than uh, Alinea Next if you're if you're trying to budget. So. Yeah. So I know, I know that was kind of all over the place, but those are some of my probably top five or six. I mean, I was furiously writing while you were speaking. I don't know if you could tell, but that yeah, was yeah, amazing. Yeah. Those, are, those are good. You can't go wrong with those. Beautiful. Prashant, thank you so much for hopping on Chicago Capital. We really appreciate it. This has been a blast. Awesome. Thanks a lot, Matt. You have a great rest of your day, right? If you are a founder seeking venture capital investment at the pre-seed through Series A stage, check out Manifold Group. We're a venture holding company based in Chicago with offices in Dallas, Los Angeles, and soon Atlantic Canada. We believe early stage private investments represent an excellent investment opportunity, but existing investment models in the space leave much to be desired. Manifold is a new model for growth in the new economy designed to create and capture value at the early stage through synergies across its venture fund, incubation and acceleration studio, and advisory firm. Learn more about Manifold at www.manifold.group. And please tune in for the next Chicago Capital episode.